Well, good morning. Something's different here. I used to be able to hide my snacks. Uh, I'd have a picnic during the message, and uh, now you can see it all. Good to be here. We are in the series Living in the Real World, First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to uh, 17. And as I was praying about how to begin this morning's message, I just sensed the Holy Spirit actually leading me to the uh, webpage of uh, the National Post. And uh, there, on Wednesday, there was a story about an interesting conversation at a town hall meeting in Hamilton, Ontario this week. A first-year student from McMaster University, he was uh, expressing concerns about freedom of speech in Canada, freedom of expression in Canada, and he referred specifically to the question of abortion. And this is what he said. He said it to the Prime Minister. If you're pro-life, then you are ridiculed and insulted. But if you're pro-choice, then you're praised. So if you're pro-life, you're shamed. If you're pro-choice, you're honored. And the Prime Minister, in his response, he referred to the Canada Summer Jobs Program. Quite a, quite a bit of discussion going on about the Canada Summer Jobs Program right now. The Canada Summer Jobs Program, what it does is it uh, offers wage subsidies to employers that hire secondary and post-secondary students. So many churches and camps and religious groups have benefited from the program. But the new grant application that groups uh, are to fill out they must indicate their support for individual human rights as laid out in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, including reproductive rights. So churches feel that they are being discriminated against for their commitment to biblical teaching around the sanctity of life. The Prime Minister said in his response, and I'll quote him, Of course, you're more than allowed to have whatever beliefs you like, but when those beliefs lead to actions determined to restrict a woman's right to control her own body, that's where I, and I think we, draw the line as a country. And that's where we stand on that. He goes on. An organization that has the explicit purpose of restricting women's rights by removing rights to abortion and the right for women to control their own bodies is not in line with where we are as a government and, quite frankly, where we are as a society. So, quite a debate around this question. Do we have freedom of speech in Canada? Do we have freedom of conscience? Is there freedom of expression? If we go back to the context of 1 Peter, Peter writes in around 60 AD. He's writing to Roman provinces in what is today Turkey. There isn't systematic widespread persecution, but as we've said, uh, disciples of Jesus, they suffer religious discrimination. They come under social pressure. What the disciples believe, what they value... It just doesn't match the dominant belief system. Doesn't match the social values of the Greco-Roman world. Their, their faith in Jesus, their lifestyle, it actually challenges what the majority holds to be good. Because they abstain from certain practices, these practices that were acceptable in the Greco-Roman world, because they abstain from them, they are maligned. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4. 
With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. In other words, when you don't participate in their race toward madness, they shame you. And there are multiple references in 1 Peter to the believers in Jesus being falsely accused, threatened, slandered. In Canada, we seem to observe a growing trend in certain sectors of the media, in the educational system, in the judicial system, and now the political system, a growing trend to place Christians, those that hold to the values of Jesus, on the outside. Uh, Trinity Western University has been seeking accreditation for uh, its proposed law school, seeking accreditation in all provinces across Canada, and it has received significant pushback from law societies in BC, Ontario, and Nova Scotia. Bob Kuhn, the Trinity Western president, he wrote the end of last year, the Law Society, I quote him, the Law Society of Upper Canada says that it must reject Trinity Western not just because of Trinity's position on marriage, but also because of our distinctly Christian environment. So the Supreme Court of of Canada heard arguments in its case, um, November 30th, December 1st. The nine Supreme Court of Canada justices are now weighing the impact of Trinity Western's Christian values on its faculty, students, staff. We live in the real world. The two case studies that I have referred to in the introduction, they both have to do, they're actually grounded in our beliefs around human sexuality and sexual practice. So, for the next two weekends, we will remain in 1 Peter, and then in February, we will take time to study the biblical foundations for a Christian understanding of human sexuality. Why? Well, first of all, so that we truly understand what the Bible teaches on human sexuality. And then secondly, so that we can be empowered to be a blessing in our society. Because God's perspective on sexuality actually is a tremendous blessing. Returning to the introduction to this message. uh, First century Christians, they lived in an unfriendly, sometimes even hostile environment. And that had psychological, social, and economic consequences. They had to wrestle with a number of temptations. One, the temptation to shame those that were maligning them, so to respond in kind. We talked a bit about that last weekend. A second temptation, to to just carefully privatize their faith so that they wouldn't be excluded. Just go quiet. A third temptation, to become so politically correct in their talk that their witness would be muted. Fourth temptation, to lose all enthusiasm for sharing their faith. How do we share our faith when we live in a challenging environment where our biblical convictions seem to be unwelcome? We may tell ourselves, well, no one wants to hear about Jesus anyways, so let's just be quiet. What do we do when our biblical convictions stand in opposition to the accepted values of the majority? For example, when the prime minister just says, this is where we stand as a country, and if you don't stand with us, you are on the outside. No more grants. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, I believe our text today 
has much to say to us. First Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The first thing that we need to do if we live in a challenging environment is to prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts. How do we prepare our hearts? Well, first of all, do not fear them. Have no fear of them, Peter writes. It can be translated, do not fear their intimidation. When we fear others, we actually empower them in our lives. We allow their opinions to determine how we will speak, how we will behave, to determine our mental and emotional well-being. Peter, here in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, the king, kingdom of Judah... King Ahaz and the kingdom that he is reigning over, it is being threatened by powers from the north. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Syria, they are in alliance. And there's an even greater power that is threatening, the empire of Assyria. So a word comes through the prophet Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me, to Isaiah, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. You see Peter's language coming right out of these verses. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. There's also another word of comfort for Judah in the, word, in the verse just prior to the verses that we read. It's a word that is spoken to the allied forces that are threatening the kingdom of Judah. 8.10 Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. God is with us. Emmanuel, Judah, is to take comfort in those words. The first century disciples that Peter is writing to are to take comfort in those words. Remember 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So disciples, you live under God's attentive gaze. He hears your every prayer. God is with you. Paul writes a similar word in Romans 8. Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I believe Paul has included absolutely everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So have no fear of them. You know, we choose not to be fearful. We choose not to be anxious. Knowing that Jesus is present to provide wisdom and clarity. Jesus provided counsel to his first disciples. He knew that they would go into difficult environments. He knew that they would face opposition. So listen to his counsel to his disciples. Luke 21, 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So when you find yourself in a hostile environment, it's actually an opportunity. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So what Jesus is saying, what Peter is saying in his first letter is, There is no need to be troubled, no need to be rattled or shaken, no need to be intimidated, no need to fear their threats. God is with you. God is for you. Amen? Amen? So no need to fear them. And then secondly, fear the one they don't. Fear the one they don't. In your hearts, honor the Lord as holy. Your heart in scripture, it's your operating center, your your thoughts, your decisions, your behavior, your conversation. It issues forth from your heart. So rather than allowing the fear of people and anxiety to reside in your heart, revere the Lord as holy. Exchange the fear of people for reverence for Jesus, fear of the Lord. Turn from fear to reverence for God. Gopalt, he's a commentator, and he writes, faith does not close doors to relationship with other people out of either fear or hate. It turns, rather, in openness to others just as it turns to God. There's a need to activate the will here. To honor is to acknowledge. It is to declare Christ the Lord as Holy. Notice how Peter refers to Jesus, Christ the Lord. The Lord, it comes from the Old Testament, Yahweh. So Jesus is the God Almighty. That's who Jesus is. Peter is saying to the disciples, revere the Lord, the Lord God Almighty, in your hearts. Bow before him in adoration and praise. Trust in him alone. If you trust him, he will guard your heart, your mind, Isaiah 8, the prophet says, God will be a sanctuary for you. God will protect you. You will abide in his presence. Trust in him. If you do, your fear of men and women, it'll be dispelled. You'll be empowered to be a blessing in your day. But if you fail to trust him, you will fall, you will stumble, you will be broken. Peter, he knew this from personal experience, didn't he? Peter learned the path to boldness through failure. When Jesus was being tried, he denied Jesus three times. It was broken. And then in John chapter 21, Jesus beautifully restores Peter. Peter experiences Pentecost and he starts to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. He is arrested, he's taken before the Jewish council. And listen to what the high priest says to him and other apostles in Acts chapter 5, verse 28. 
we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. You see, the antidote to fear, the fear of people, is an awareness of the greatness, the power and glory of the Lord. Worship focused on Jesus drives out fears, and it makes possible an honest, bold response when people ask. Do you struggle with fear? I'm sure if you are honest, you would answer, yes, I struggle with fear. What do we do when we're wrestling with fear? I find it helpful to remember scripture. For example, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We need to renew our minds with the truth of scripture. And then I confess my fear. Lord, I should not fear what others think of me or what they're saying. I should not be absorbing their threats, but I am fearful. Lord, forgive me. And then as I worship the Lord, as I set Christ up as holy in my heart, as I remind myself of who he is and who I am in him, I find that my mental state, my emotional state, can change dramatically within minutes, sometimes seconds. You know, accusations, slander, it usually touches us in a place of weakness. And of course we have a spiritual enemy, the devil, who is more than happy to remind us of our weaknesses and those accusations and would have us believe that they are true. If we listen to those accusations, those words of slander, if we hear those messages over and over again and we do not stand in the truth, we can begin to think things like this. Wow. We followers of Jesus really are on the wrong side of history. We should be embarrassed for what we believe. We really don't have anything meaningful to say in our day. The gospel is irrelevant. And if we begin to absorb those things, those things that we hear... We won't be ready to respond should someone ask. What do the scriptures say? Again, we need to remind ourselves. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Wow. How do you and I see ourselves when we enter a room? You know, it may be the university campus. It may be the workplace. Maybe the majority do not follow Jesus. Some people might be hostile to the Christian faith. How do we see ourselves when we enter a room? I've had to wrestle with this because, you know, 
whenever you enter a room and people want to get to know you, the first question that many men ask me, at least, is, what do you do? And immediately I have to respond with the truth. I'm a pastor. That can stop conversations immediately. It certainly alters conversations in some way. So do I, do I just then hang my head? How do I see myself as I enter room? How do you see yourself as a follower of Jesus? This isn't a question of arrogance. It's a question of relationship with God and who we are in him, our identity in Christ. You see, the truth is that the Father is our good Father. The truth is that Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls as we enter into those rooms. And his name is beautiful. That's what we just sang. The Holy Spirit does abide in us, and the Holy Spirit is always kind and gentle and wonderful. In Jesus, we are a beautiful fragrance. That's the way that God sees us. We are the aroma of Christ in the world. Have you noticed how a fragrance fills a room? The phrase, have no fear of them, it can also be tra translated, do not fear what they fear. What do people fear in an honor-shame world? What were the people in Roman society afraid of? Well, they're afraid of being excluded. They're afraid of being left on the outside. And if that's our root fear, we're going to conform. We're going to privatize our faith. We're going to go quiet. We're going to be as politically correct as possible so no one would ever be offended. You see, our identity is grounded in the Almighty God who guards us by His power. Our lives are in His hands now and forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We are His treasured possession. God is for us. So we need to prepare our hearts. And then we need to remember that not all are against us. That's another lie of the enemy. Absolutely everyone is against us. No. Robert Fulford, he's a, a well-known Canadian journalist. And um, he, uh, I believe, is an atheist. He describes himself as an unbeliever. He says the, he likes the word unbeliever, unbeliever better than atheist. And over uh, Christmas, he was writing about the atheist community that often is really irritated by the Christmas season, all the religious symbols, all the music. This is what he writes, December 22nd, National Post. Every Christmas I find myself grateful to live within a civilization that has been constructed by Christianity. The truth is that our society has been given its moral principles by Christianity, and those principles shape us, whether we are committed to a religion or not. Christian feelings enter in the moral air we breathe and find a comfortable home within us. We believe we should see the welfare of others as at least as important as our own. We should treat everyone fairly. We should be ready to give an honest account of our lives. When we describe our fellow citizens as good, we are usually saying that they follow the way of life that we have learned, consciously or not, from the pervasive Christianity around us. 
On a grander level, over almost two millennia, Western civilization's Judeo-Christian traditions have provided the energy, intelligence, and will to evolve democracy, separate church and state, define human rights, and justify freedom of speech. Christianity, as if telling us how to sort all this out, also invented the universities. That's an interesting word from an unbeliever. So where are our, the moral foundations we still have in this country, and many believe the moral fabric to be coming undone, but the moral foundations we still have, where are they grounded? Well, I agree with Fulford in the scriptures. So we prepare our hearts, and as we prepare our hearts, we allow the aroma of Christ to do its work, and we walk prepared. Peter says, be prepared to give an answer. Be prepared to give an answer. The word defense that's used in the text there, it was often used for the argument for the defense in the court of law. But it was also used for just a spontaneous response in a conversation. If someone asked for your position, you would provide a defense. I don't believe that Peter had in mind the academic field of Christian apologetics here, valuable as that may be in our day. Rather, he was concerned that his disciples be prepared to give a response whenever the opportunity should arise. Should anyone ask, share the reason for the hope in you. Share the reason for the hope in you. When those around you are confronted with the living hope in you, despite difficult circumstances, when they're confronted by the the mystery of your loving response in the face of insult, when they're confronted by your undeniable inner peace in the face of accusation, and they ask you for a reason, be ready to give a clear explanation of the gospel. The word reason in verse 15, it means a rational response. Be ready to provide a clear explanation of the hope in you in terms that your hearers will find meaningful. We have to have the ears of our hearers. Francis Schaeffer is known as one of the great apologists of modern times. He uh, preferred to refer to himself as an evangelist. He said the following, if I had one hour to spend with someone, I would spend 55 minutes asking questions, finding out what was troubling the individual, and then the last five minutes answering those questions. You see, not all people are struggling with the same thing. Not everyone has the same question. Some people are ridden with guilt. Some experience very little guilt. I remember being on a night bus in Brazil and I was talking to the professor beside me. Can't remember why I asked the question, but I asked him, do you experience guilt? And he said, no, not at all. Some live under shame. Others are overwhelmed by fear. Some can't find a reason to live. Others are wrestling with anxiety. The gospel speaks to all of these and much more. As I prepared the message, I was reminded of a conversation I had on a plane about seven years ago. Forgive me for the plane story. It could have happened on the SkyTrain. It had been a long commute. But um, I was flying from Toronto to Frankfurt. 
And I was exhausted. I just wanted to sleep. Get to my seat, sit down, sleep. And uh, so the plane took off. Meals were served, and I made my first mistake. I opened my eyes, and I thought, hmm, that looks good. And I started to eat. And as I started to eat, the man to my left started to talk to me. His name was Heinz. So Heinz told me that he had uh, grown up in Germany, born in Berlin. He told me that during the Second World War, their family had struggled to find bread. Later, the family moved to Argentina. That's where he grew up. Then I made my second mistake. I told him that I had lived in Brazil. Oh, then he wanted to tell me about all of his travels around Brazil and Paraguay. The conversation went on and on. He, you know, as a young adult, then moved from Argentina to Canada, got married. They had children. He started a number of successful businesses. I thought, oh my, this conversation is never going to end. So then he says, uh, Ray, do you know why, we're, why I'm off to Germany? And I said, no, I have no idea. <laughs> he said, well, four months ago, my life changed dramatically. Four months ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. Two months later, she passed away. Now I'm going to Berlin, where I was born, in order to meet my relatives. I need to make a new start. I'm trying to start over again. And he said, I, I miss my wife terribly, but what really bothers me is that I don't know why I'm alive. alive. My life has never been filled with meaning. So I said to Heinz, I said, Heinz, um, let me tell you about Jesus and how he has filled my life with purpose. And Heinz said, I don't want to hear about Jesus. And then he told, gave me all the reasons why he didn't want to hear about the Christian faith. And I thought, oh good, I can go to sleep. <laughs> no. Um, we continued to fly. Heinz continued to talk. Um, after about six hours of, con- literally six hours of conversation... We are now arriving in Europe, and the sun is coming up. Heinz, he's looking out the window, and this smile comes across his face. And he looks at me, and he says, right, there must be a God. And then he said, I believe God placed you beside me tonight. Uh, uh, I'm not so sure, Heinz. (laughs) No, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Yes, I agree, Heinz. And what I did is I said to him, I said, Heinz, if you would just open your heart to what God has for you, you could make a new start when you arrive in Germany. And I shared the good news of the gospel with him. He wasn't ready to surrender his heart to Jesus in that moment. But if we share the reason for the hope in us, It is not in every conversation that will actually lead the person to pray a prayer of repentance and of surrender to God, but God will use us to help those people take another step forward. The question is, are we prepared to give 
a response, a reason for the hope in us. We'll speak more specifically about the good news of Jesus next week because verses 18 to 22 of chapter 3 are wonderful, difficult verses. Um, Point right here is, Every one of us, every disciple of Jesus, should understand the essentials of the gospel. We should be able to tell people why we do follow Jesus. If you're uncertain about, you know, the foundations of your own faith, if you don't know how to share the reason for the hope in you, take a discovery class like um, learning to share your faith. If you have all kinds of questions about life, about God, uh, what it means to be a Christian, sign up for Alpha in February. We are to be ready to share the reason for the hope in us. And then we are to share with gentleness and respect. With gentleness and respect. You know, the conquest of fear that we talked about earlier, it should not generate within us pride or a smugness. The Christian does not taunt or disparage those who believe differently. We give witness winsomely. Listen to Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. If people are offended, it should be by the content of the good news. Not because our behavior somehow invalidates Christ's love for them. If we fear God, we live humbly before God and before others. We treat our accusers with dignity as fellow human beings. We accept them, not their worldview, not their opinions necessarily, but we accept them as people. Peter says, keep a good conscience. Keep a good conscience. Conscience, it's a word for our our spiritual and moral awareness of God and who we are in light of who God is. And if the Holy Spirit abides within us, then our conscience will be enlivened. We become more and more aware of our sinfulness as we follow Jesus. We become more sensitive to what is right and wrong, more discerning. And as we're convicted by the Holy Spirit of our sin, we repent. We should walk in daily repentance for sin. But we don't stay there in the place of repentance. We actually move forward under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, witnessing with a clear conscience because we have asked for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we share the good news with a good conscience. And if we do that, Peter says, our accusers will be put to shame. I enjoyed uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of 1 Peter 3.16 this week. Listen to this. Keep a clear conscience before God so that when people throw mud at you, none of it will stick. They'll end up, end up realizing that they're the ones who need a bath. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Bishop James Pike, he was um, one of the leaders of the Death of God movement in the 1960s. Some of you are old enough to remember that. Uh, A a movement that took on a lot of life in the United States in the 1960s. He was an Episcopalian bishop, heavily influenced by liberal theology. He denied almost all of the fundamental tenets of the Christian faith. 
On a televised debate, he was, he was debating with an evangelical apologist, and he was literally being dismembered during the, ba- the debate. He was unable to respond. The evangelicals in the crowd started to cheer for him because he just couldn't answer. Humiliated. Some years later, uh, Bishop Pike had another debate with Francis Schaeffer. It was around the year 65. Francis Schaeffer, he was the founder of Labrie. Uh, Labrie means shelter. It was a study center, still is, a study center in Switzerland for those that uh, were questioning the meaning of life, that were trying to find answers for their questions about God. Schaeffer writes the following, and I quote, At the Roosevelt University Auditorium in Chicago, I had a dialogue with Bishop James Pike. Before the dialogue, I asked those in Labrie to pray for one thing, that I would be able to present a clear Christian position to him and to the audience, and at the same time end with a good human relationship between the two of us. It was something I could not do in myself, but God answered that prayer. A clear statement was raised with a clear statement of differences without destroying him as a human being. At the close, he said, if you ever come to California, please visit me in Santa Barbara. Later, my wife and I went to his place and were able to carry on further a discussion with him without one iota of compromise. We also talked about the possibility that his belief that he was talking to his son on the other side was really a matter of demonology. This was sometime after Bishop Pike's son had committed suicide and he had tried to communicate with his son through a medium. And he did not get angry, though he was close to crying. It is possible to make clear statements, even the necessary negative ones, if simultaneously we treat people as people. Now notice something here. Bishop Pike was entering into debate with evangelical theologians. So they're debating theology. But what's really going on in his life is something much darker. The real issues of his heart. His son has committed suicide. And in the emptiness of his life, he is consulting the dead through mediums. In 1969, Bishop Pike, he died tragically in Israel. He was looking for ancient manuscripts. And one interesting detail. After his time in Israel, he was planning to go to Switzerland to spend time with Francis Schaeffer. You see, if people are shamed, if they are shamed, it should be because of our good behavior, not our aggressive response. If people are offended, It should be because of the content of the gospel, not our bad behavior. So prepare your heart. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope in you. And remember this, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The favor of God rests on you. 1 Peter 4.14 If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's stand for prayer. And as we pray, I would like to pray through this matter of fear. Because if you are human, like me, every now and then, you do experience fear. I'm going to pray in the first person. And so I would encourage you to pray with me. If you can pray what I'm praying, then pray with me. Lord, I confess that I give myself to a spirit of fear. Many times I fear people. I fear being rejected. I fear being shamed. I fear the evil one. Jesus, when you died and rose again, you triumphed over the evil one. You sit at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all powers. You have sent your spirit to abide in me. And as your word says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Thank you. I resist the evil one in the authority of your name, Jesus, and I surrender to your lordship. I surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for convicting me of sin. Thank you for being present to encourage me, to comfort me, to lead me on, to empower me. I choose to walk in the peace, the love, and the joy of your spirit for your glory. When people ask for the reason for the hope within me, may I respond with clarity, authenticity, love, boldness. May I respond with gentleness and respect for the furtherance of your kingdom, Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you.